0: People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turine Productions. Fine Music Radio, this is Rodney Trudgeon. Welcome you to this week's edition of People of Note. I've just read a most fascinating book called Finding Endurance, Shackleton, My Father and a World Without End. And as we know, when Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance was discovered below the Atlantic ice as recently as March 2022, 106 years after it sank, the world thrilled anew to one of the greatest survival stories of all time. And the acclaimed South African writer Daryl Bristow Bovey has a deeply personal relationship with the story of endurance and his lyrical loving journey into past and present, into humanity and natural world. He revisits this famous story, wondering why it seems to mean so much more today than ever before. And Daryl is a prize-winning screenwriter, travel writer, and a newspaper and magazine columnist. He is the author of six books, which have been translated into seven languages, including Spanish, Estonian, and Portuguese. And he was born in South Africa, studied under J.M. Kutzea and Andre Brunk, and currently divides his time between Cape Town, the UK, and a hillside in Greece. And his fascination with endurance, as we'll hear, began as a small boy. Daryl, welcome. Welcome to Fine Music Radio.
1: Well, thank you very much, Ronnie. It's a delight to be here again. Oh,
0: good. It's a delight to have you back in Cape Town. Mm. You say you share your time, but how often do you come back? How how much sharing is there?
1: I am probably in Cape Town about a third of the year, I would say. Um, I, it does say that I spread my time between Greece, the UK, and South Africa, but the UK sees very little of me these days. Oh, right. We get more of you. Wretched place Yes. the UK. <laughs> I don't know if you know this. Um, and the last time I was there, it was, there were rail strikes, and oh, goodness, my, yeah. my, my book publishing party got cancelled. So I'm, I'm, I'm holding a grudge against the English. <laughs> You're entitled
0: to. But obviously you have a form of attraction to Greece because that is where you live with your lovely
1: wife. That's where I'm building a house. Not myself. Not no, I. No. I. I don't carry the hod. The, the uh, I have... Uh, it, the great joy of building a house in Greece is that you get to work with the greatest optimists on earth, uh, which really? is Greek builders. Your house, when will my house be finished? Your house will be finished before the end of the year, they say, uh, four, five, six years in a row.
0: Oh, okay. Uh,
1: but cheerful with it. Uh, and so I'm hoping one more year and the house will be built. And then I'll spend a third of my year there.
0: Is the house on one of the islands or on the mainland? No, it's
1: on the Peloponnese. Um, so I bought it, I bought the la- which is the mainland. Um, oh, okay. I bought it off the internet during lockdown mm-hmm. because I was in a borrowed house in, in uh, uh which, as you know, is in Cape Town. Really.
0: It is. Um, I would be surprised if there was a Tamburisklerf in Greece, but you never no. know with the Greeks. I
1: was in a, a borrowed flat realized I needed, uh, in times of lockdown, um, land of my own. So in, in a mad impulse, purchase bought it off the internet, sight and Good grief, wow. And so for a year, it sat there and and, uh, and uh, it was with uh, a great relief when I finally got to it and discovered that it, it, it was more or less what it looked like okay. on the internet. It wasn't a, some sort of a uh, swindle. Mm-hmm. And did you say with the view of the sea and all that? View of the sea, one hundred and twenty olive trees. Wow! Yeah. Um, and some bees. Mm-hmm. Uh, get rid of those bees! <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I plan to make some honey and some olives. Gosh,
0: I'm sounding with Gerald Durrellish at the moment.
1: Wow! I know. I read reread uh, Gerald Durrell the other day just to, to sort of get back in back in the mood. Um, Are you talking about my family and other animals? Yes, yes, all of those. I read it every few years. I think I've read it, I don't know,
0: 10, 11, 12 times Mm. and love it. Just a
1: delight. He was the children's version of James Bond. You know, James Bond was, uh, Fleming started rising in the 50s as this escapism for adults because he's always eating lovely food and, and traveling the world, whereas austerity, England was huddling at home. Gerald Durrell was exactly the same time, um, and it was sunshine and exotic animals and sea. Mm. It was yeah. the same escapism for both Incredible. of them. Incredible. Is it summer that you always wanted to go and stay at on? No, I'd never been to Greece until about four years ago. Five years ago.
0: So how long have you been there now that you can call it one of your homes?
1: Um, uh, Five years. Yeah, I bought it off the the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so, you know, I do call it my home because I don't actually have any home at all. Uh, We move around each month to a different place, a different city in the Mm -hmm. world. Um, and, and go back to Greece to to check on the progress, uh, which is usually zero. <laughs> and then but it will
0: be ready by the end of the year, I'm sure. Oh, definitely by the end of the year. <laughs> but the funny thing, talking about moving around all the time, was one of your, your letters you write to your friends is that you wrote this book. We're going to come to that in a minute, by the way, um, in a number of different places. Do you enjoy doing that sort of thing?
1: That's sort of part of the course. I I have to work wherever I am and and I move around. And at first, it was a bit sort of troublesome. I thought, you know, in order to work, you need a routine and a um, a stable place. But what I found is that if your external circumstances are always changing, then you have to create your own routine yourself through Mm -hmm. your habits and Mm -hmm. and, um, setting up your little desk and doing work the same, more or less the same hours every day. And so I feel... That moving around, being constantly in a different place, uh, creates more stable habits in me. So oh, that what is interesting. When I'm in the same, yeah, it's, it's, I only sort of realised this quite recently. That I seem to work better like that because when I'm in one place, I have the stability is forced on me. So I, I want to escape it the whole time by not mm-hmm. working. <laughs> I see.
0: Well, that's a different approach, I'm sure. Mm. Daryl, mm. we're going to take your first piece of music as a sort of. Prelude to talking about your book, Finding Endurance. And I see you've chosen Vaughan Williams' Seventh Symphony, known as the Sinfonia Antarctica, which, I, as I'm sure you know, is based on a film score Vaughan Williams wrote for Scott of the Antarctic. Mm. And the prelude that we're going to hear now, the first few minutes of this movement, I think really creates, is that why you chose it, creates an atmosphere of this extraordinary spot on the planet.
1: Yes, it has that feeling of as you travel down the waterways of the world heading south, leaving land behind you and and heading towards the unknown.
0: And it's also a bit haunted sound as well. It is. Let's listen. as part of the opening movement of the Symphony No. 7 by Vaughan Williams, which has the nickname Symphonia Antarctica, and it was taken from film music that he wrote about Scott, Scott of the Antarctic. We're talking about Shackleton, the book Finding Endurance, Shackleton, My Father, and A World Without End. My guest is Daryl bristow Bobby, the author thereof. You know what, Daryl, the first question I want to ask you mm. about this book is actually the first question that sprung to my mind, and that is, Is there room for another Shackleton book? There's so much about Shackleton, documentaries. Looking at your bibliography at the back Mm. makes you realize, A, how much research you did and how much there is on this. So what made you
1: think the world needs this book? I mean, that was the first question that struck me as well. Does the world need another one? Does the world (laughs) need another book of anything I read? Well, interestingly enough, um, there is more new material being discovered all the time. Mm -hmm. So some of the diaries that I read and used in there have not been used in other books. There is material in there that is recently discovered by me, I think, uh, or certainly used for the first time by me. But really what is difference is the discovery of endurance itself last year in March Mm -hmm. and the expedition that went out to go and find it. And what finding that expedition, what uh, finding that ship did for the consciousness of of endurance was it seems to change the way we look at it and uh, look at the expedition and look at the people and look at the, the lessons we draw from it. And uh, it, it seemed to shine a different light on how we as people, um, as a society, and as an individual, uh, approach things like uh, thinking about things like climate change and um, our own sort of struggles to endure. I do think that there was a lot new to be said about what Shackleton means. So there are new facts, but really I think what I've done, or what I tried to do, was to look at the expedition, the story the mythology of it, and to say new things about it and to point out what it says to us that is new, that it it wasn't saying 15 years ago.
0: Okay, then the very other important thread is Mm -hmm. My Father in a World Without End Mm -hmm. where you have, rather cleverly, may I say, because I have to be (laughs) polite to you, Devil, Mm -hmm. intertwine the two, your world, your life and your family, Mm -hmm. with Shackleton
1: I mean, so this one of the things that the Shackleton story speaks most strongly to me about now is it's an exploration of hope and of an object lesson in ways of reimagining what words like success and failure mean Mm -hmm. Um, at a time in the world where we're all sort of fretting about the success or failure of of our various attempts to save the planet or to save society or to carry on going ourselves. And my father, to me, was a a person much like Shackleton, who considered himself a, a failure and was considered probably, in the way Shackleton was, um, a failure at the time. You know, it's only very recently, in the last 20 or so years, that Shackleton has been rediscovered or, or, or reappraised as a, as a heroic figure. He was considered to be a person who did not get to the South Pole, who did not cross the Antarctic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, yes, you know, Scott also failed in his way, but he, he failed in a very noble English way, which is by dying and killing, you know, killing all of the men with him. Which was uh, in the mid twentieth century, in the early twentieth century, um, a, a glorious uh, English defeat, and there was nothing glorious about Shackleson because he survived, and 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 he brought everybody back alive. And and some of that the, that thinking of, of this all or nothing, win or lose approach to thoughts of success and failure um, had me thinking a great deal of of my father, who, who was a very powerful figure in my life. He died when I was very young. Um, and he used to tell me, st- st- what kicked off my fascination with endurance is when he told me as a very young boy that he himself had been on the endurance and knew all sorts of facts about it that that he couldn't possibly have known without being on the endurance. Um, but that got me thinking about what it is that makes for a successful life. And he never achieved the things he wanted to achieve, he never did. Th- he w- he was no Amundsen. He he didn't discover the South. Know, he didn't get to the South Pole first. But but what he did was he found a way of enduring and of carrying on and of doing something and then doing the next best thing he could think of and then, and keeping on going. And and to me that, that feels like a very contemporary form of heroism. That I think uh, is worth celebrating,
0: um, Daryl. You mentioned that your father was on the Endurance, but he wasn't on Shackleton's ship, was he? He wasn't on that
1: voyage. I, I, yes, I must. I must, uh, must contextualise and say my father <laughs> was a great storyteller, and in fact a terrible liar, which is which is which is, which is very often the same thing. Uh, well, true uh, as you know, very true. He told um, true stories that weren't necessarily factually uh, exact, uh, and one of them was that he was on on the endurance, and it was the great mis- one of the mysteries in the book that I I, I try to to get to the bottom of, is that he was in fact uh, too young to have been on on endurance, but he knew things about Shackleton that he either guessed. Um, it certainly wasn't available to him at the time that he told me but which subsequently have emerged in in biographies such as Roland Huntford's, which were only written and published long after he died uh, and so that that was one of the enduring sort of fascinations and mysteries of my early life is to, is to figure out how this person who couldn't possibly have met Shuckerson or known him Knew so much about him. And so the two of them have been entwined in my imagination for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I I have some theories involving it, but uh, there's a certain radical ambiguity at the heart of the quest. (laughs) I like that radical ambiguity (laughs) and why not, I say.
0: Let's have another piece of music before we continue our journey uh, on endurance. And this is Bach from his cantata 140, Wachet Auf. Is this... Something special to you?
1: It is. It's, it's one of those bits of music that always make me sort of uh, a little weepy. And I can imagine hearing it in while well, frozen in to the sea, the Weddell Sea. Uh, and the men of the Endurance used to play records to each other on their gramophone. This was one of them. Mm-hmm. And I, it always haunts me to think of this very beautiful music uh, rolling out over the the icy plains of the of the frozen Weddell Sea.
0: That's one of the great chorale preludes by Bach, Wachet auf, from his cantata number 140. And it was a second choice of my guest on People of Note this week, and that's Daryl Bristow-Bovey, whose new book, Finding Endurance, uh, has just been published by Jonathan Ball. And as I've been saying, I read it and thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. So it was, do you know what? It was a bit of a page-turner, Daryl, like, a, like a, um, a novel, like a, a thriller because of the the fate of these men and just going back to your father you've brought actually quite a personal touch to the chapters where you do deal with your family your father and things like that
1: well you know one of the one of the great um, themes of, of of Shackleton in the story is is what heroism is and and my father was always my hero obviously because you know he was um, this this figure who who died when I was young and so never had the opportunity How to. How old were you when you I died? I was 10.
0: Oh, so, yeah, yeah. that is very young.
1: Yeah. So, um, you never had the opportunity to disillusion me the way we all disillusion those around us when they know us long enough.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and a bit of psychology <laughs> kind of philosophy coming in there. <laughs> so
1: I, um, personal revelation, um, uh, and so I, I, I've always thought of him as, as a hero, and it was while writing it and and thinking of the similarities the entanglements between Shackleton and my father that actually the writing of it led me to to some of the other more personal uh, and difficult um, uh, parts of the book that I hadn't thought about before which is the fact that while I obsess, uh, you know, uh, trying to remember the stories my father told me and trying to recreate him through the stories and worrying about that, that I'm forgetting some of the stories and therefore, I'm, you know, I'm losing him again. The whole time, my mother was there in the background and she was the one um, uh, putting food on the table and worrying and crying at nights and bringing up two children on her own. And, and and it sort of led me into the, the the realization that there's another kind of heroism that I'm you know that I haven't in my life thought sufficiently about and and given enough credit to her, and she and I, uh, we love each other I assume but 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 we're from that old uh, an old style of. Uh, family that doesn't talk much about its emotions to each other yes and, and so the things in, that I found myself writing in the book that I could only write just uh, on the assumption that my mother would never read it because it, it's you know it, 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 it's a kind of emotional honesty and so is your uh, mother still alive oh she is yes yes, ah. yes she um at the age of 81 she moved to Tunbridge Wells Uh, two years ago, which is not an odd odd sort of thing to do. She never left the country before then, so it was um, peculiar. Um, (laughs) It's a
0: peculiar (laughs) move in your 80s. So
1: I just, uh, you know, I um, I couldn't stop her getting the book, I suppose. It was on sale then. She bought it and and I just, you know, hoped that she wouldn't say anything and and she's read it and, and she said... Oh, what a lovely book. <laughs> and so we both... Very in c- keeping with yes. what you said,
0: not showing too many emotions.
1: Exactly. We both we we both sort of lapsed into comfortable silence around us. But I'm very pleased that I've written those things because they are things that I would want to tell her and uh, would never be able to do it in person. Was it a
0: sort of cathartic thing then to do with your family, the family yes, part of uh, the book?
1: Yes, I think so, yes. Cathartic and um, and sort of confessional and uh, and an acknowledgment of, of, of things that need to be a, a Acknowledged and, and a way of telling her, I suppose, um, that I see what she did at last and, and I'm grateful to her for it and that I love her. You know.
0: When you started the book, Finding Endurance, did you know which way you were going to go? Had you thought of a structure that, that you were going to include some personal family things?
1: No, I, I knew that there was a structure of, of the, the story of Shackleton and that obviously gives it a, a built in narrative structure. I knew I wanted to write about what optimism and pessimism mean for us as individuals and as a society. And
0: You've diverted some chapters to mm. that, haven't you, to optimism and pessimism.
1: Yeah, and I knew I wanted to write about the natural world uh, to a large degree, uh, especially the, the natural world of the Antarctic, and I knew I wanted in some way to, to be writing about my, my sort of quest to understand my father's um, involvement mm-hmm. ah, okay. in, in all of okay. this. I kind of, I, I kind of figured that out fairly early but i didn't i wasn't expecting where it would take me in terms of the the journey to to rediscover my mother and um and the kind of a side a, a sort of very serendipitous side journey to connect with some relatives that i didn't know about um my my father's sister who i assumed was dead uh, but found uh, living in maitland uh, which is um Maitland here in state. Cape Town. Hmm. Oh yeah, gosh. Yeah. Then I discovered it sort of by chance in the newspaper her her husband, my uncle, um, had died when a pyramid of beans collapsed on him in the spa. Oh
0: gosh. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a story in itself, isn't
1: it? Yes, it is. Um, Shame, and here we are laughing at <laughs> Well, I've been I write, uh about it in the book because I was considering using it in a column when it first came out, and mm-hmm. I had to weigh it up because it is is—it's objectively funny when a person dies uh, under its uh, pyramid of beans. Oh, it wasn't only beans, it was also spaghetti and tomato sauce. Well, um, that, that's, which that's is probably even, what did it. Even funnier. But, <laughs> but then I realized, well, he was 93 and, fra- and frail, so it okay. wasn't quite as funny.
0: Okay. The other important thing is, am I right in saying that you've not been to the Antarctic?
1: You're not entirely right, no. Um, oh. So in researching the book, I went to uh, Tierra del Fuego to walk uh, I, I, well, to Patagonia, and to Tierra del Fuego, to to walk on the ice and to to experience the ice flows and and so forth, and to catch a lift on a, on a ship down to Antarctica, which I did, but never. So you're not entirely wrong either. Never managed to sort of get off. I never walked around on the ice, and I never, um, you know, I didn't spend any time on the on the continent itself. But but I I, I went in the wa- on the ship down to those waters, but. You know, the Antarctic continent that's available to trippers, day-trippers and tourists, um, not day-trippers, but tourists like me, is not the Antarctica that uh, the explorers walked on. It's really just the Antarctic Peninsula, which is a, a sort of a long arm that sticks out of the uh, the, the northern part of, of Antarctica, and people go uh, Antarctica, and people go there and sort of see some birds and and, and some and ice, step on some ice, and go uh, home yeah. again. Um, and it's it's not the far deep south that's that, that Scott and Shackleton and Amundsen mm-hmm. would have reached.
0: Mm-hmm. But it must have given you a, a bit of a feeling, did it possibly, of the remoteness of the place?
1: Yes, I, the that's the great appeal, you know, imaginative appeal of of Antarctica is the, mm. this impossible remoteness of it when. when when Shackleton and his men got, got frozen into the ice, they were as far away from civilization as any human beings had ever been and would be again until Apollo went to the moon. Wow, that's a thought. And even Puts it into perspective, doesn't and it? And even more remote, they had no radios. Yeah. You know, they had, they had a, a radio they could pick up um, Morse code but couldn't transmit it which is uh, pretty much the definition of a useless (laughs) right yes (laughs) Uh, and and so nobody knew where they were they had no way of 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 letting anybody know what had happened to them or where they were so so really they were far more remote than the astronauts were Mm -hmm. when they went to the moon
0: goodness me we're going to take some more music now mm. before I, we explore more. And you've got here Shackleton's Cross by Howard Goodall. What is that?
1: That is a piece of music. Uh, he's a Howard Goodall, a contemporary composer, and he he's done a lot of television and film composing, I think. But he's also um, a serious composer. And it is based. It's inspired by a portrait in. I think it's um, Prince Charles's collection uh, of uh, a painting of of the Shackleson's Cross at Dripvike on um, South Georgia Island where he was buried.
0: Now, that's called Shackleton's Cross, written by Howard Goodall. And Shackleton is very much the subject of this people of note because the author, Daryl Bovey is here, whose new book, Finding Endurance, Shackleton, My Father in a World Without End, has just been published by Jonathan Ball. And you're doing what authors do, aren't you, Daryl? You're going around the country for launches and things and making speeches and being questioned.
1: I am. I am. It's a great – well, uh, that's what authors do if they're lucky. <laughs> uh, and it's, yeah. uh, so <laughs> I feel very lucky. And um, normally I do it, but I don't feel quite the same degree – I don't normally feel the degree of, of, of happiness for doing it. That I do now because this this is really the the first book that I'm I'm, I'm sort of unequivocally proud of. Oh, good!
0: I'm glad you said that, and you have every right to be. Oh, thank you.
1: Yeah, it's it it feels like um, it feels like a book that's I should be right. It's the first time I finished a book and thought yes, that's what I, I should have done, and I did do it, and, and I'm pleased with with how I did it. Did it take a long time? It didn't take a long time. Nothing. Good ever takes a long time in my world, um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because if it takes a long time, it means I've sort of uh, lost some sort of juice. It took the specific research and writing that took about six months, but um, of course there's, there'd been twenty or thirty years of reading and, and yes. of interest in it beforehand, so, so that had primed the pump. Mm-hmm.
0: And um, although I haven't read all your books, I've read a number of the books that you have oh. published, and this is for me completely different. In its feel, in its text, it's lyrical. We used the word lyrical earlier, and that's one of the words that there's a lyrical beauty to the book, even when you're talking about tragedy, may I say.
1: Well, thank you, yeah. Well, that's when you need lyrical beauty, isn't it? Well, true. That's true. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But, Daryl,
0: talking about lyrical beauty and all that, the the amount of detail you go into regarding the ship and ship's things Mm. and ship language and also the ice and the flows and all that, I mean, it sort of implies that you did a huge amount of
1: research. Well, I did, but I also had a a very intense imaginative engagement with it. Because what really interests me, one of the things that really interested me, is what it would be like. you know what it would feel feel like to to be uh, cast away on in the ice, uh, living on the sea, on the frozen sea for over a year. You know, what would it be like when you wake up in the morning? You know, what would it be like to get into your sleeping bag at night, and, and what do you eat? How, you know, uh, where do you go to the bathroom? You know, you know all of the, all of those things that I very often find myself wondering when reading history books, um, and, and not getting sufficient sufficiently satisfying answers to. Mm-hmm. So, so wherever that question occurred to me, I would try and look into seeing exactly. You know, what shirts were they wearing w- when was when they were spending thirty seven deg- you know, days and nights in thirty seven degrees and fifty degrees below zero you, w- what pants were they wearing how, how mm. could they i get cold in my flat with with like <laughs> one pair of socks <laughs> like t- how many socks were <laughs> they wearing you know, yeah, what yeah. were they made of you
0: know? and you, i mean now you make me think of things like underwear for example, mm. let alone using toilets and so on but um and there, you obviously then discovered because you spoke about them eating seal blubber, Yet. which sounds horrible, but well, clearly it they had to. Them. It saved them. It's
1: yes. them. It was how they got their vitamin C, and and of course, no, scurvy is one of these strange things that that was a, a terrible uh, curse. Uh, to, to seafarers and um, the navy for hundreds of years, killed more than a million um, sailors, just just in, in English sailors alone. Um, then they they found out a cure for it, you know, with the limes, mm-hmm. and then they forgot the cure, and they didn't really because they didn't really know what it was, and and they 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 cured scurvy, gave everybody limes, and they discovered that oranges were a little bit cheaper, so they started giving people oranges again. And didn't realize that it wasn't as effective as, uh, as, as lime. And as the 20th century went on, we'd forgotten. We, we, the world didn't know how to prevent scurvy, but it didn't matter because voyages were much shorter. Okay. So it was only when the polar explorers went to the ice and were gone for long periods of time that that's, uh, the fact that we hadn't actually cured scurvy uh, 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 as reasserted itself, that's probably what killed Scott. Mm-hmm. um Amundsen w- w- moved quick, quickly enough that it didn't bother him um and also he uh took the um learnings from the eskimos and ate the livers of of the animals that they found and it turns out that that liver and fresh meat contains sufficient vitamin c and so so shackleton who th- they, they basically killed everything that, that yeah. came their way. Penguins, yes. seals, you know, uh, and... and Did they be,
0: kill an albatross, I'm trying to remember?
1: They considered killing an albatross. Ah, oh, yes, I, um, a, I uh, remember a story about they that. They had a long... The, the men on the boat, on the open boat, when they were sailing to, to Elephant Island, they were, they were being followed by an albatross. And these chaps had all been reading Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Man- Mariner because <laughs> yeah. they had a big library uh, aboard the Endurance. And there's this lovely sort of scene of these rough... Uh, sailors uh, discussing the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. They th- thought he was a. He, uh, it was a rough fate that had occurred to him. And they were eyeing out this albatross, and uh, it didn't occur to them for a moment that they shouldn't uh, kill and eat this, this albatross. The only reason that they didn't was because they had enough uh, meat a, a, at that time. They thought it might be a bit stringy, but they would be perfectly happy to to shoot it down with a crossbow.
0: It sounds so incredibly crude, doesn't it? That's yeah. what I remember when I was reading it thinking, good Lord, it's, it really sounds not only like another world, but that you are almost not human
1: anymore. Well, that's uh, the men who were left behind on Elephant's Island when, when Shackleton went off uh, to, to get help at, at the end of it. Um, one of the scientists was saying that, that the thing that most ground him down at the end, because the, they were all reduced to a state of nature, they were covered in soots and blubber and blood, and no one washed, you know, in over a year. It was uh, they, they were grubbing on the ground for morsels of of lichen. Um, but he said the thing that most ground him down at the end. Was the need to kill everything that they found? Yeah, you know, the, the state of being reduced to to a, a caveman, who, yeah, yeah. who if, a, if when they encounter an albatross chick, they have to strangle it in, in the in the nest and and eat it whole. So, and you know, that was the the thing that that really had him questioning what it was to be a human being. Mm-hmm. Because it
0: was, I I remember thinking how sorry I felt for those people who were left behind. Mm-hmm. When Shackleton went off with, I think, two others, Uh,
1: yeah, four others,
0: four others to uh, try and find somebody. And then came back to them. So, was it a year? I'm just trying to think. Was it the year the, the this expedition?
1: It was. It was a year and a half. It was nearly um, two years. They spent two Christmases uh, out on the ice.
0: And isn't it sad? As someone was telling me, we were discussing this book and Shackleton, how he managed to save everybody, and then some of them went off to the World War and got shot.
1: Well, that was the thing. You know, they when they came back to civilization, they they weren't. Greeted back like returning heroes mm-hmm. they they were actually they were greeted much the way I suppose social media greets people like that today there There's strong similarities to the way you know the the submersible the the titan submersible yeah, that died yeah. and which was a terrible thing for the people on board and and it was they were greeted by um you know torrents of derision for being voicing their time and and uh, and money going down there. And when these men came back from the ice they were greeted in the newspapers with um, hostility and derision for wasting their time down there instead of going to war instead of doing this important thing Mm -hmm. going and fighting in flanders and and dying with everybody else how dare they survive this thing while everybody else was dying so they all signed up and and one of the 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 bravest and most cheerful um, young tim mccarthy who Shackleton said was the best and the most optimistic of them all. He was the first, you know, he, he to sign up and the first to die, and he was dead within a month of oh of, of, of landing in in, mm-hmm. in France
0: after having gone through all that. After
1: having gone through all of that, you know, stretching the sinews to to pull off one of the great uh, adventures uh, uh, in human history uh, of survival and endurance, and to to go off and just be mowed down with everybody else. Yeah.
0: Daryl, as always in these things on radio, you run out of time, and especially with a a ripping tale like this, I don't want to let you go, but I have to let you go. And maybe you want to go. (laughs) There's something I want to ask you before you go, and that is about the captain of the SAO Gullis II, whom you met and had quite a lot to do with, Knowledge Bengu, Mm. and who seemed to inspire you actually in some way. Judging by how you wrote about him. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Knowledge Bengu, so the SA Agalas II was the, uh, the South African icebreaker that was the ship that discovered the endurance, uh, that was ch- chartered to, to go and look for endurance uh, in March last year, February and March last year, and that discovered it, um, frozen at the bottom of the sea and, and under the ice. And Knowledge Bengu grew up not far from where I grew up. Uh, he, he was in Kwamasha, I was on the bluff in Durban. And he's a most extraordinary person. You know, he's the first black ice pilot yeah, in the world. Um, he, he was one of the youngest full, full captains um, in the, the, the merchant service, I think it's called. Um, and, and he is this positive, dynamic, focused, uh, you know profoundly inspiring chap and he took me around on on s a gallus and made me coffee on the bridge oh. you know, which is one of the great experiences uh, of my life i think um, uh, yeah, because he was he's like a hero uh, by that I was in this sort of state of mild hero worship and um so it was nice when you heroes make <laughs> you a cup of coffee. coffee absolutely it was a very really good coffee i have to i have to regretfully uh, oh, uh, dear. Uh, add but you see nothing um, is perfect nothing <laughs> is perfect. Of imperfection <laughs> but uh but he was another one of these parallel threads that run through this book of mm-hmm. um th- that are my my way of sort of exploring what it is to be useful and what it is to be positive and what it is to be optimistic and and how best to live life and to approach life
0: yeah optimism and pessimism play quite a role mm-hmm. in this book and now, Daryl, what's next? Are you resting on your laurels for a while, or you you write quite a lot, don't you?
1: Well, I'm, I'm a scriptwriter. I'm a television writer, and um, I'm in the process of. We've just finished shooting a TV series that I wrote, and I'm executive producing. Uh, for it's an international co-production with England uh, with an English Channel, and uh, we're in the process of. Wrapping that up and and doing final edits, and I'm writing another series. And I'm hoping when all of the dust here settles, that I will I can write another book. Because the thing is, the thing is, you know, no one gets rich writing books, Rodney. I don't know if you know this. No one gets rich writing <laughs> oh dear. books. Yeah. But if you sell enough books, then you can write another one. Okay. And okay. that's that's my that's right. my ambition.
0: I hope this book sells like mad because it's an astonishing book, Daryl. I've been very polite about it all the way through, and I mean it. It's had a a great effect on me, and um, I urge you to have a copy. It's called Finding Endurance, Shackleton, My Father in a World Without End, written by Daryl Bristow-Bovey and published here in South Africa by Jonathan Ball. And it's on the shelves and all that now, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. It's currently sold out everywhere. Wow, um, look at b- that. Because it takes uh, forever for, it seems, I, I don't know whose fault it is, but I'm sure it's somebody's fault, to get books back onto the shelf after they've sold out. But, um, yes, so if you don't find it at your bookstore, please, please pester the manager. <laughs> Drag them out from their, their <laughs> den, their foxhole den at the back of the store and and demand that they they restock. There you are. Words from the author. Your last piece of music
0: by Andrew Seymour, Antarctic Triptych 3. What are we
1: going to hear? Well, so it's the third part of the Antarctic Triptych. Uh, The first, very scary, very ominous. Uh, the, The second, it's all frozen and cold. And this, is the final uh, spring has come to the Antarctic and the ice is melting and I, the foxes are playing. There are no foxes on the Antarctic. <laughs> I was but, just going to <laughs> say. But uh, there, there is a feeling of, of life returning even to this frozen world.
0: Daryl Bove, thank you. Thank you not only for being an interesting guest, but for a really fascinating creation in your book.
1: Thank you very much, Rodney. I've enjoyed this immensely, as always.